And you can turn the Bible to Matthew chapter 5. It's printed in your bulletin as always. It's on page 9. I do think our pew Bibles have made a return as well somewhere along in the sanctuary. So there's a Bible for you if you didn't bring one. Or you can turn to copy your own copy of God's Word again to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount together. This is actually part 11 of our series, but it's our first step outside of the introductory remarks to the Sermon on the Mount that we know as the Beatitudes. It is our uh, first step out of the foyer, as I've called it, the the foyer of that grand palace, which is the Sermon on the Mount. It's our first step out of that opening foyer of the Beatitudes and into the larger now, you know, courtyard or, or, or living room, if you will, of the palace of the Sermon on the Mount as it continues uh, all through chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. So again, Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning, and it says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God, it remains forever. Amen. What if I told you this morning that contrary to common medical advice, what if I told you this morning that contrary to your physician's dietary advice. We don't need less salt in our diets, but more. More. What if I told you, contrary again to your dietitian's advice or your physician's advice, that we don't need less salt in our diets, but we need more. More. That the root problem of everything wrong with the world today can be connected to a diminishing level of salt, of salt in our lives, in our culture, uh, in the world. That our blood pressure, right, our blood pressure is on the rise, again, not because of the salty foods that we overindulge in, but our blood pressure is on the rise because we live in a world that is stressful. We live in a world not salty enough. And so because of that, we are bombarded with things that cause us to despair, cause us to stress, cause us to abandon hope if we're not careful. That we live not in a salty world, but in an increasingly bland world. That we live in a decaying world. We live in a world overcast by darkness. What if I told you those things? Well, obviously, I'm stretching. I'm stretching uh, the metaphor and some of the images 
here, but in a sense, those are some of the ideas contained within the teaching of Jesus here. That like he does other places, he takes two ordinary images, he takes two ordinary things, and he uses them, though, to expand upon and to enlighten us about extraordinary kingdom realities. That's what he does, right? He takes two ordinary elements or images, and he uses them to drive home extraordinary kingdom realities. And this morning, what he does in this text is he takes the images of salt and light. Salt and light. Not salt life. You've seen those bumper stickers, right, on cars, salt. That could be a good Christian thing, right? We should hijack that maybe and make it a Christian thing. Not salt life, not bud light, all right, right? But salt and light. Those are the two things that Jesus gives us, salt and light. And remember, again, this is Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago, 2,000 plus years ago, and yet these two images remarkably remain as relevant as ever. These two images, that of salt and light, instruct us as God's people what our role in the world should be and then what the effects of that role in the world are. So again, these two images instruct us on what our role as God's people in the world should be and what the effects of that role in the world are. So again, how does the first image inform our role as Christians in the world? How does it inform our role as Christians? That of salt. Salt. What does salt do? What does salt do? Well, As we're well aware, it belongs on our french fries. (laughs) It belongs on our potato chips. It belongs even on our caramel or caramel, if you say it that way. Salted caramel. You ever had salted caramel? It's pretty darn good. Okay, I was skeptical, but it belongs there. Salt belongs on caramel. It belongs on chocolate even. Salted chocolate, delicious, right? So salt belongs on our french fries. It belongs on our potato chips. It belongs even on our caramel, which means what? Salt seasons. Salt seasons or it enhances. Again, it doesn't create the flavor, right? Think about that. Salt doesn't necessarily create the flavor. We don't eat salt on its own unless you're a horse, right? Horse with a salt lick. We don't, I lost some of you, but okay. We don't eat salt on its own unless we're a horse, right? But what do we do? We put salt upon things, and again, it brings out the flavor. So we don't eat salt alone, but we put it on things, and it brings out the flavor of that fry or that chip or that caramel or whatever. But again, to continue that metaphor, that food metaphor, salt also belongs on things like our beef jerky, Okay or it belongs on our bacon, or it belongs on even salmon if it's been smoked and dried, because what? Salt also, it can cure things, right? Not like heal, although it does that too, and you're cut sometimes. You go to the beach, and all of a sudden you're, you know, that cut on your knee is healed faster. Salt cures, right? So it, it, it enhances flavor, it seasons, but it also cures, right? Meats that we can enjoy even beyond refrigeration, Why? Because they've been salt cured. They've been 
packed with enough salt in the processing and around them. What does it do? It draws out the moisture. It draws out the, the, the elements that can be kind of fertile grounds for bacteria, and that meat becomes what we call cured or becomes preserved. So salt seasons, but salt also preserves. And so again, when Jesus is telling his followers this, that as Christians or as disciples, we are to be the salt of the earth, even then, in the mind of his original followers, they weren't thinking of the Chick-fil-A waffle fry, and you can't think of that on Sunday, so don't even try, right? You crave Chick-fil-A on Sundays, but you can't get it, all right? They weren't thinking of the Chick-fil-A waffle fry, but they would have been thinking, even in their day, of these effects of salt, of the, of the attributes, characteristics of salt, its ability to season, its ability to preserve. And Jesus wants them to make the connection that these are two functions of being his follower. These are two function, functions of being a disciple, that we are to bring those roles to the table of the world. But how? How? Well, to go back to the beginning of what I was saying, what plagues the world today is a bland or a flavorless, man-centered, not God-centered view of things. We live in a world that's become bland and flavorless, spiritually speaking. That we live in a world that has rejected the Christian message, rejected these realities of there being an ultimate creator, who artfully made this world and who placed us within it, but that we are his fallen creatures in that world who have been redeemed by Jesus and now given heaven as our ultimate and final goal. That is a message that has found you know, less and less of a home here, and because of that, the world is worse off for it. The world is bland, spiritually speaking. The world is flavorless, spiritually speaking. Instead, the world has embraced this message, this notion that we are our own gods. Isn't that true? That we are our own gods. That maybe we didn't create ourselves. That happened through some cosmic accident. But we are now here, and we are the measure of all things that we are the standard of all things, that we are the creators of ultimate truth. We are the creators of ultimate reality, that again, we are our ultimate gods, that we alone create history, we alone control our destiny. That is the message of the world. And that message isn't new. It's going back, you know, Centuries, it's always been within the heart of man, but it can be summed up in that great John Lennon song from 1971. Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Isn't that the anthem of the world? The anthem of the world, the message that's embraced instead of the gospel, the message if we're honest, which we're even tempted to embrace at times in our own personal lives, but it's a message that if you pause to think of it, is woefully bland. Bland. Flavorless. It's one note, if you will. There's no depth of flavor. 
For again, how bland and uninteresting and sad, really, is it to believe that we, that we are the measure of all things? How uninteresting is that? How flavorless is that? To believe that we are the measure or the, or the standard of all things. How bland and flavorless and, and sad, really, is it to believe that history and life and the world's purposes are limited to just the horizons of our lives, of your life, of, of my life. That we are gods. Again, how bland and flavorless, how sad is it to live in a world where you and I are gods? <laughs> you and I, think about that for a second. You and I, with all of our phobias and fears and weaknesses and allergies and whatever, we are gods. Again, how sad, ultimately, is it to live in a world where that is the message being championed, and on the contrary, to again use this food metaphor, how much more satisfying, how much more flavorful and deep is it to live in a world, to live in a place based upon the reality of the gospel instead? How much more deep is your life? How much more flavorful is your life? How much more nuanced and beautiful and satisfying is your life to live inside the reality where there is a God over all. There is a God over all. There is an omnipotent creator, and he, again, he made us in his image with a purpose, with a purpose outside of ourselves. And yes, we rebelled against that purpose. We still rebel against that purpose. And yes, we have broken the world that he artfully made for us, but then he came to redeem us. He came to set all things right. He came to make all things new. You see, this is what Jesus came to announce in the arrival of his kingdom. And when the followers of Christ came in and placed their faith in him, he then sends them out and says, now you are to take this message of hope. You are to take this savory, seasoned message of hope to the world and bring the flavor of the gospel. To bring the flavor of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. We point to the one above us. We bring out his character. We bring out his message. We bring out his plan and purposes. His love, again, the way that salt brings out the flavor of another. And we do that precisely, again, in this, how do we do this way? We do that precisely by preserving his truth. So notice how seasoning and preserving are connected. We season the world with the gospel by preserving his truth. How do we combat the message of the world that I just mentioned? How do we respond to the message of the world that competes for our allegiance? How do we respond to the pervasive religion of self which dominates our world? Well, we do it, again, by preserving the timeless truths of God, the timeless truth of his gospel as it's contained here in Scripture. Again, we don't go out and invent the message. Paul says that a number of times in his letters. This is not a message he invented. It's a message that he's been commissioned to preach. So we don't go out and invent the truth. We don't go out and invent religion. Again, the cure's salt didn't invent ham. It didn't invent salmon. But what did it do? It clung to it. 
It clung to it, and it preserved it. That's the same thing that we as Christians do. We cling to the truth of God, and we preserve it. We preserve it. Again, in a world of ideological bacteria that wants to contaminate the gospel, in a world of ideological bacteria that wants to decompose the gospel and see the old truths decay, we as Christians are the cure's salt, if you will, that are called to preserve it, to stand firm upon this message, to preserve that once and for all message delivered to the saints. And we preserve it through everyday things like coming here to worship. By coming here to worship, We preserve it by hiding the scriptures in our hearts. We preserve it by teaching it to our children, by raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, by catechizing our children. We preserve the truth of God by working to see his original definition of things preserved in our world, things like gender, or truth, or marriage. We work to see them preserved in our schools, in our communities, in our culture. That's what we do again, right? We don't invent the truth, but we preserve it. We cling to it. That preserving role, that preservation role, that seasoning role. And again, it's going to look different for each and every one of us. It's going to look different depending on where he's placed you in this world, what role he's given you, what occupation he's given you, if he's blessed you with children or not. It's going to look different for all of us, but it's that preserving role and that seasoning role that God, again, has called his followers to. But what about that second image he gives us? That second image of light. What about that image? Again, look at the text. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, left to its own, the world is bland and it's flavorless and it's turned inward. Think about how that was even true from the very beginning of Scripture. Think about how the human heart always wants to shrink the horizons of God. Early on in Scripture, as we know, the people of the earth were called to go out and flourish and expand and take the fame and glory and renown of God with them wherever they went. And instead, what did they do? They huddled among themselves and they built a tower to their own name. They built a city to their own name, namely Babel again, to their own glory. And that's because, again, the world on its own is bland, it's flavorless, but the world on its own also labors under this shroud of darkness. This shroud of darkness, the darkness of our own devices, the darkness of our own sin, the darkness of our own attempts to erect our own kingdoms until what happens? Until God comes down like he did with Babel, until God comes down and he shines the light of his glory upon us. And in that moment, what happens? 
God comes down and he shines the light of his glory upon us. And in that moment, it reveals, that white hot light reveals just the frailty of what it is that we are building with our own hands. It reveals the frailty of the works of our hands and our own efforts. It reveals the scandal of our sin, the shame of our sin. Again, the way that it did in Babel, when God had to come down and see that little anthill they were building to their own glory, and his glory overshone it, and, it, and it, you know, his grandeur appeared, right? That happens then, but it also happened in the arrival of Jesus, that God's light shone fully in Jesus upon the frailty of our own efforts, but then again upon the fullness that God brings instead in his gospel. How, how does John put it? John puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life Here's that phrase, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That's now our role. That all might believe through him. <clears throat> he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, John in his gospel reminds us here, alongside Matthew, that in the arrival of Jesus, the light of God's judgment shone down upon those frail and futile works of our hands. It shone down on our sin. We've been caught. We've been caught. It shone down on our idol making, and everything in that light started to all of a sudden seemingly come short. But for those who didn't cower from that light, from those who didn't run back into the darkness, but saw that light, not just as revealing, but healing, what does John say happens? They have the right to become children of God. Think about that. The light shines. The light shines and it reveals our sin. But as we know, there is a kind of light, even in this world, there's an ultraviolet light, right? Where if you shine that light bright enough, what does it do? It actually heals, right? It kills bacteria. It revives. It gives life. So the light of God, to continue that metaphor, shines down upon our sin. It reveals its frailty. But then if we don't cower from that light, but we embrace its warmth, we embrace its truth, that light floods over us. It washes over us. And it becomes not the light of judgment, but the light of grace. It becomes the light of grace. It becomes the light of healing as we see things for what they really are. We see our lives for what they really are were it not for God. 
And then in that white hot light, we see God's glory and we see his love and we see his grace. And again, that light of judgment becomes the light of grace. It becomes the lens by which we now see the truth, the truth. And we walk in that light. We become children of God. <clears throat> we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And we see things what they really are. C.S. Lewis put it this way in one of his uh, well-known quotes. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. S-U-N, the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I can see everything else. You see, that's what happens in the light of Jesus comes upon us, it changes us, it, it transforms us. Colossians 1 puts it this way, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 5, which we read earlier in our service, says, Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead in Christ will shine on you. So do you see how that works? The light of God shines upon us. It reveals our sin. It reveals our weakness. It reveals our frailty. But then it reveals the glory of God, the truth of God. It reveals his grace and his mercy and his salvation. But that true light, that light of lights, namely Christ, where has he gone? He's ascended back to the Father. He's ascended back to the right hand of God. And yes, he still is with us spiritually, his presence. Yes, his Holy Spirit now resides within us. But the key here is that the world will labor again in darkness. And the world will revert back to the shadows of darkness unless there's a light still to shine within it. And the light that Christ has left behind to shine within it is you. It's you. It's me. It's Christians. It's the church. It's the followers of Christ, as Jesus talked to them, even when he walked to the earth. Christ, the true light, has ascended back to the Father. He's coming again, but he has ascended back to the Father, and he has left behind him, though, a community of lighthouses, he has left behind him a community of beacons, namely, again, his followers, Christians, the church. So he says, you are the light of the world. And again, the world will revert back to darkness. The world will always default to a position and a posture and a place of darkness if there's not a light to shine within it. And the light that God has left behind, again, to shine is you. And it's me. 
It's the church. It's Christians, which is why Jesus reminds us that he didn't give the light to hide it under a basket. (laughs) He didn't give the light to hide it under a basket, he says, but no, instead it's set upon a stand. It's set upon a table. He has not built a city of light to be cast into a vale or a valley, but where has he built it? He's put it on a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so again, we are to shine the same light that Jesus shone upon us. We proclaim the truth of human sin and shortcomings, not judgmentally, not judgmentally, but being honest with our own struggles, being honest with the fact that we, are la- we labor under the same sin as others, that we too labor in darkness were it not for Christ. So we proclaim the truth of human sin, again, not judgmentally, but being honest with our own struggles and showing others where to find the light of hope. We are beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. That's what it looks like. We are the wounded showing other wounded where to find healing. And we proclaim the truth, the light of God's grace for sinners in Jesus. His desire and ability to transfer any who come to him in faith from that domain of darkness, again, into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So where is God calling you? Where is he calling you? As I mentioned already, the world needs more salt in it, doesn't it? It needs more witnesses for Jesus. It needs more people willing to preserve the message of the gospel. The world of darkness needs more lights to shine bright. So where is he calling you? Where has he placed you? He's given each of us a hill to be that city upon. He's given each of us a stand in which we are to shine the light inside of us. He has called all of us to be that seasoning and preserving salt. Not salty Christians, like grouchy Christians, right? But hopeful, hopeful, witnessing, evangelistic Christians. So again, where is he, where is he calling you? Where is he placed you to fulfill that role of salt and light to a world that so desperately needs it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word again, which convicts us. Salt and light. How is it possible that after all these years, that's still a relevant, remarkably relevant image? Well, it's possible because it's your truth. And it's possible because though the world changes, cultures change, empires rise and fall, the human heart remains pretty much the same. The human problem remains pretty much the same. But thankfully, the solution also remains the same. And it's you, Lord, as you have come to us in Jesus. It's you in the gospel as you were found. And so, God, we thank you for that ever-present, unchanging truth. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your family. We thank you for making us your disciples But Lord, we do pray that you would then also empower us, help us 
embolden us to be the witnesses, the salt and light you've called us to be, because it's not easy. It's not easy. It's hard. We don't always pick up that mantle or role gladly, but maybe begrudgingly or timidly. So Lord, would you help us through your spirit to be who it is you've called us to be, to be who it is that you've made us to be, again, only by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.